0: Hello, Nephew community, and welcome to the Hot Topics in Nephrology podcast. I'm Jeff Lockwood with the Nephew Medical Team, and I'm here with Mark Newman, writer and editor specializing in nephrology. Every month, Mark keeps us up to date on the latest hot topics in nephrology. Well, Mark, new year, same podcast. It's uh, good to see you again. It feels like I haven't seen you since last year.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's actually cold here in Arizona, you know, as cold as it can get. We've got snow up north, and um, it was um, just about freezing last night here in uh, Scottsdale. So,
0: Yeah, we've been behind on snow. We finally got some last night, too.
1: Yeah, a lot of storms going through.
0: Yeah, finally feels like winter. Well, today, uh, Mark will be covering an important paper just released in the JAMA Pediatrics regarding increasing BMIs among adolescents and the risk it poses for chronic kidney disease. And Then we're going to have a second topic as well. Uh, when we'll talk about the release of the or the, sorry the results posted today by CMS on the second year of the ESRD treatment choices model and we've covered this in uh, previous nephew podcasts it's a demonstration aimed at determining if financial incentives lead to an increased placement of patients on home dialysis and directed to transplantation so mark let's get started
1: okay thanks jeff so Uh, Let's launch our first podcast for this new year and talk about this new JAMA Pediatric Study. Uh, We'll start with the conclusion first from researchers at Shelba Medical Center in Israel. And here's what they said. In this cohort study, high BMI in late adolescent, and they defined in this study uh, the population as age 16 to 20, was associated with early CKD in young adulthood which can occur even in seemingly healthy individuals with high normal BMI and before the age of 30 years. Given the increasing obesity rates among adolescents, our findings are a harbinger of the potential preventable increasing burden of CKD and subsequent cardiovascular disease.
0: So there's a lot to unpack there, Mark. Can you give us some more details about the study?
1: Yeah, the researchers retrospectively studied data on 593,660 Israeli adolescents, aged 16 to 20 years old, but born after January 1st, 1975. And these are, these are individuals who had medical assessments for mandatory military service, which is in essence how they gathered the data. The mean age at study entry was 17.2 years, and 54.5% were male and the mean follow-up was 13.4 years. So it it was a good breakdown between male and female. For males, the risk for developing CKD increased the most among those with severe obesity during adolescence, followed by mild obesity, overweight, and high normal BMI. So these findings were similar among the females in the study as well. The authors noted that the study results showed that obesity in the teenage years pose a higher risk of CKD even if there were no signs of pre or cardiovascular disease. So even a high normal BMI without those other indications, without those other conditions uh, in late adolescence was associated with an increased risk for CKD.
0: Yeah, so it kind of reminds you of that saying, the uh, chickens have finally come home to roost, which means, I think in this case, that obesity among our youth today Due to a lack of exercise, maybe more time in front of some of those gaming modules, Xbox, whatever they are, uh, affect their long-term health.
1: Yeah, no question. I mean, we both remember the days when we were younger, and and uh, you know, time after school for today's kids has changed. We found ways to burn off calories by playing baseball, riding our bikes, and other youth sports. Well, many school systems today no longer require physical education classes. And studies show participation in youth sports has declined. Maybe all Xbox and PlayStation should be sold with a gym membership and wellness guide.
0: You know, it would be a good idea. And that's exactly why I'm not a big gamer myself, and I really limit my kids.
1: You know, the authors acknowledge this as well, noting that adolescent obesity rates have been steadily increasing, with one in five adolescents in the United States having a BMI at or above the 95 percentile for age and sex on the CDC growth chart. So this has been an ongoing issue. And we have known for some time that there's a connection between kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, brought about by uncontrolled hypertension and diabetes. And I think more recently, and with this study, the link to obesity. So now we are seeing this problem among adolescents.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's a really good recap. so, Mark, what is our next topic for today?
1: Well, we've been covering this ETC model uh, for, for a number of uh, podcasts over the last year or so. And this, of course, was part one of two demonstrations launched by CMS as part of the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative, which was signed as an executive order by then-President Trump in 2019. So this is a mandatory model for dialysis facilities, meaning that if your clinic was in the HSA, or hospital service area, that CMS selected, you were obligated to participate. The demonstration started in January 2021. The second year of the demonstration has been completed, and uh, last year we, of course, reported on the first year and what the results were. And CMS just released the report today on progress and improvements in kidney care. So we'll review that in a minute, but here are a few factoids. This involves 2,564 participating facilities, and it roughly covers, well, in this particular case, we have the exact number, 121,451 Medicare fee-for-service patients. Now, this does not include Medicare Advantage patients, and that's the way the demonstration was designed. There has been some discussion about with the increasing growth over the number of patients on dialysis who enter Medicare Advantage, how this might skew uh, the demonstration, and will they accept those patients as they go forward. So, these patients are managed by what they call managing clinicians, and the program provides payment adjustments that encourage participating ESRD facilities and these managing clinicians to ensure that ESRD beneficiaries have access to and receive education. About the kidney disease treatment options. And here's a quote from the study, from the demonstration project literature. Specifically, CMS positively adjusts certain Medicare payments to participating ESRD facilities and managing clinicians for the first three years of the model for home dialysis and dialysis related services. Similar adjustments are made if dialysis facilities get more patients evaluated and placed on the wait list for a transplant. And CMS also provides payments if patients who go on home dialysis or get waitlisted for transplant uh, who are considered socially disadvantaged. So the main focus here really is looking at financial incentives and whether they make a difference for dialysis providers. And there's many, you know, if you do a survey among providers, among clinicians, there's a lot of folks that believe that home dialysis and transplant are the best options. But we both know that that is only roughly about 15% of the patient population is on home dialysis. And we still, of course, have the supply and demand issue that we've talked about many times regarding transplant. So the message here is CMS recognizes the economic advantages of both of those two options and wants to encourage more of it. And that's what they're trying to determine whether financial incentives would make a difference.
0: Right. So, you know, if you send more patients home or help them with a kidney transplant, in essence, you got two options to save the government money. And the dialysis clinics kind of share in that savings. But has it worked?
1: Well, it's a good question. I remember, as I said, we reported on the first year results, and they're pretty pretty lukewarm. I mean, there was a few um, uh, improvements in getting patients evaluated for transplants but it didn't show up necessarily in the transplant rate column. There was also improvements in the number of patients who were trained for home dialysis, but it didn't necessarily show up differently in terms of the number of patients added to or or moved to home dialysis. So it's sort of like you've gotten 50%, but you didn't accomplish the second part. So, and again, by this report, which is commissioned by CMS, uh, by the Lewin Group, which also did the first year results, uh, they acknowledge the program has not done very well. Uh, here's a summary of their year two report. Through the first two years of the ETC model, there was no difference in the growth in home dialysis between the ETC areas and the comparison group, which in essence are facilities outside of that um, outside of that demonstration. Uh, here's a quote: Home dialysis grew similarly across ETC areas and the comparison group increasing 12 percent to 15.2 percent in ETC areas and 12.7 percent to 15.9 percent in the comparison group uh, from 2017 to 2019 uh, and then to 2021 2022 respectively so in other words there was an increase but it wasn't any different than in areas where there was no financial incentive provided Uh, to date the ETC model has led to an eight percent increase in home dialysis training, we mentioned that earlier, The most of that change occurred in 2021. And in terms of transplant, overall transplantation has increased in the ETC model, but there's no significant increase in transplant waitlist or living donor transplantation, which is also a major focus uh, for CMS. Uh, there are no differences in Medicare spending, no worsening or improving of underlying disparities, and no unintended consequences. So, in other words, there really hasn't been any savings from this from this project. There hasn't been any change in overall outcomes, quality of life, um, and uh, there hasn't been any change in getting more patients who are in these um, disparity, you know, who are facing social disparities, getting more of those patients um, on home dialysis or transplant. And that was also a focus. There are no changes detected on measures of infections or other complications among dialysis patients, on patient mortality or on experience of care among in-center hemodialysis patients to date between ETC areas and the comparison group. So CMS concluded by saying the following, given the challenges and the complexity of increasing home dialysis and transplant rates and the early stage of the model implementation It is too early to form conclusions about possibly longer term impacts of the model. So maybe we'll see something in their year three report next January. But I think the overall message is that financial incentives do not necessarily lead to a change in practice patterns. And ultimately, you know, there's always a sense by CMS that the easiest solution is to, in essence, pass some more money around and hope that provides incentives for providers. Uh, But the bottom line is, many of these um, facilities um, may or may not have home programs, for example, and this is an issue that was talked about earlier. Um, If you were in this catchment area, if you were in this service area, and you don't have a home dialysis program online, but you're still obligated to follow through, you will miss out on those financial incentives because you don't have a home dialysis program, so you have to think about: Is it worthwhile to establish one, and pay the cost, and pay the staffing, and pay the overhead, to take advantage of this incentive? And if you decide not to, in essence, you're getting penalized for not improving your home dialysis population because you don't have a you don't have a training center. So, right, um, it's and that's kind of why they made this mandatory to some degree to make sure that they can capture, you know, a large enough amount of data. and But it also sort of brings in these folks who really, they, they don't qualify. I mean, if you have a clinic in, a, in the service area and you have another clinic a mile outside the service area, you can't use the success of that clinic in home dialysis and parlay it into the one that's inside the center. So there's there's definitely some technical issues. I guess we'll wait until that third year and see if we get some more positive data. But, um, that's where it's at right
0: now, yeah, and I guess I'm not sure if I should be surprised or not that, even with the financial incentives, we didn't see a bigger uptake in home dialysis. But and it's one of those things that I keep saying with every podcast, you know, we'll see what time brings and if that will change. We'll just have to keep waiting and see if year three is any better than years one and two. I think that pretty much wraps up for us today. Um, Mark, Thank you so much for joining us to discuss the risk of CKD in younger patients uh, due to an increasing BMI in kind of that adolescence period. I know as someone with younger kids, that's an interesting side to hear about and something you always want to keep track of, you know, once they start getting a little bit older and growing. Um, And I think, you know, if if this is how we're going to start the year, we are going to have a very interesting and event-filled 2024 podcast series. So thank you to the Nephew community for joining us and listening in. Be sure to like and subscribe to the Nephew podcast. We are on all of the major podcast hubs, Spotify, Google Podcasts, which might be switching to YouTube podcast, I think I saw, and Apple Podcasts. I hope you all enjoyed the discussion and be sure to join us next month so Mark can keep us up to date on the latest hot topics in nephrology.